Well, please uh, take a copy of uh, God's Word and turn with me one more time for now to Isaiah chapter 9. Isaiah chapter 9. Um, If you're using one of the pew Bibles, one of the blue ESV Bibles in the pew in front of you, that's on page 729. We're going to look once again at verses 2 through 7 with special focus on verse 6 because this Christmas season we've been thinking about the four names uh, given to Christ in verse 6. He is Wonderful Counselor. Mighty God, Everlasting Father, and Prince of Peace. And if you've been with us so far, you know we haven't looked at those last two names, so we're going to try to do that this morning. We're going to do them in reverse. So we'll look at Prince of Peace and then Everlasting Father. So let's turn our attention first to the the reading of this passage, Isaiah chapter 9, beginning in verse 2, and let us hear the word of God. The people who walked in darkness have seen a great light. Those who dwelt in a land of deep darkness, on them has light shone. You have multiplied the nation. You have increased its joy. They rejoiced before you as with joy at the harvest, as they are glad when they divide the spoil. For the yoke of his burden and the staff for his shoulder, the rod of his oppressor, you have broken as on the day of Midian. For every boot of the trampling warrior in battle tumult and every garment rolled in blood will be burned as fuel for the fire. For to us, a child is born to us, a son is given, and the government shall be upon his shoulder." And his name shall be called Wonderful Counselor, Mighty God, Everlasting Father, and Prince of Peace. Of the increase of his government and of peace there will be no end. On the throne of David and over his kingdom to establish it and to uphold it with justice and with righteousness from this time forth and forevermore, the zeal of the Lord of hosts will do this. Prince of Peace. Usually when we think about peace, what comes to mind is the absence of conflict or the end of war. And that idea is certainly not um, beyond the purview of what we ought to have in mind when we think about the peace that comes through Jesus Christ as the Prince of Peace. Isaiah himself talks about peace coming in the wake of the reign of the Messiah, Remember back in chapter 2, he talks about uh, nations taking their instruments of war and turning them into instruments of cultivation. Nations no longer being opposed to one another. Peoples no longer being in conflict with one another. Isaiah is saying that one day, because of this child who is born and this son who is given, wars will cease. But we know, don't we, we don't live in that day just yet. Isaiah there is talking about the not yet aspect of the peace that will come through Jesus Christ. The way the Bible talks about the reign of Jesus, it it becomes clear that the end of hostilities in this world will come 
when Jesus Christ returns, that will be part of the full flowering, the full flourishing of his redemptive saving work. It's one of the blessings that awaits the people of God in the world that he will make new. And so to really understand what Isaiah is telling us here about Jesus, I think we need to think about this two-part title. Remember, each of these titles, there's two parts to it. Here we have Prince of Peace. What kind of prince is he and what sort of peace does he bring? Let's think, first of all, about Prince. We need to understand this is not merely an honorific title. This isn't just a lofty way of talking about this promised child and this son who is given This is a title that speaks about his authority, his right to reign as a royal figure. So Isaiah has emphasized this point, hasn't he, in the verses we've read of the increase of his government and of peace. There shall be no end and on the throne of David and over his kingdom to establish it and uphold it with justice and righteousness from this time forth and forevermore. For unto us a child is born and unto us a son is born is given and the government shall be on his shoulders. Now, if you look back at verse 4, we've we've reminded ourselves of this each week so far. Isaiah describes this great reversal that God accomplishes for his people. And so God's people um, dwelling in darkness now see a great light. God's people who were Uh, in anguish and in sorrow, now have cause for rejoicing. God's people who are in bondage and captivity have now been set free. Think about that last component there, the freedom that is brought about in connection with the Prince of Peace. And we need to say that there is freedom under the rule, under the government of the Prince of Peace. Notice how Isaiah describes the oppressed people. The the yoke of his burden, the staff for his shoulder, the rod of his oppressor, their description of the people in their oppression. The people are under a heavy yoke. They're bearing the staff on their shoulders that they cannot bear. They're under a rod of oppression. And so what does the Lord do? He brings an end to the oppression By ruling for us and ruling over us. I couldn't help but think here about the words of the Lord Jesus that traditionally are often called the comfortable words of Jesus. In Matthew chapter 11, you remember he says, Come to me, all you who are weary and heavy laden, and I will give you rest. Take my yoke upon you and learn from me, for I am gentle and lowly in heart, and you will find rest for your souls. For my yoke is easy, and my burden is light. You see, friends, Jesus brings us into freedom, not by setting us loose to live however we please, but by bringing us under his good and gracious rule. And at the end of the day, we need to recognize that's really a summary of the only two ways there are to live. Either you shoulder a heavy yoke, a heavy yoke of sin and guilt before God and trying to live life your own way, or you come under the reign of the Prince of Peace and bear the yoke of his gentle authority. Those are the only two options 
we have. And maybe you tell yourself, and we're told this every day in the society we live in, that true freedom is found in living life on your own terms, living life your way, the way you see fit. But the Bible makes clear to us the truth is that when you go your own way, when you live life on your terms, that actually isn't freedom. It's a form of slavery. It's a form of captivity. You're not free. True freedom is not radical independence. True freedom is found in submission to the easy yoke and the light burden of Jesus Christ, the Prince of Peace. And those who surrender to his reign then in their lives know the relief of being set free from bondage to the world, the devil, and even themselves. See, this is part of what makes the, the Christmas story such tremendously good news. In Jesus Christ, a good king has come. And you can bow the knee to his lordship and embrace his mastery. And in that, real freedom and lasting peace is found. Actually, there's no other way to have Jesus, is there? You you can't have Jesus on your own terms. You can't have Jesus as Savior and friend and not have him as King and Lord because the life that Jesus redeems, he rules. There There is no deliverance apart from the dominion of Jesus Christ. And that means... We can't fit Jesus into our pre-existing lives and just go on as we did before, thinking we can fit him in with everything else that we hold dear. He, He came to be king. He came to rule. The government is upon his shoulders, Isaiah says. Gloriously, he reminds us, he's broken the staff of the oppressors from our shoulders. He removes the yoke of burden from us. He rules for us, and that is good news. But this call here, this this reality calls us to submit to his dominion. His yoke is easy and his burden is light. But if we are to come to him, we must come to him as our king. And so the birth of Jesus, the, the Christmas story, if you like, calls us to quit living life as if you were your own. And we talked about this on Christmas Eve. Fundamental to the Christian confession is the confession that I am not my own. I am not a sovereign unto myself. I belong to Jesus. You belong to Christ, the prince, the ruler of God's kingdom and the ruler of God's people. And so Jesus summons us to take his yoke and learn what life looks like when he is in charge as we submit to his loving rule. Now think about the second half of this title, Prince of Peace. Uh, What is the peace that Jesus brings? We've already talked about a future aspect of peace that we look forward to, the cessation of war and conflict among the nations. But is there more to be said? There's a lot more to be said about the peace that we have through our Lord Jesus Christ. 
But there are some misunderstandings I think we need to try to avoid. I think one way we could misunderstand this is to, in our highly subjectivized age, is to, to reduce this peacefulness to a mere subjective feeling. You know, I know, I know Jesus, and he gives me this sense of peace. Now, of course, there's, a, there's truth to that. Reality of knowing Christ, trusting in him, knowing that in Christ I, my sins are forgiven, I'm reconciled to God, does bring a sense of peace that transcends our understanding. But I don't think that's the main thing that's in view here in the context of Isaiah chapter 9. The peace that Jesus brings, we need to appreciate this, is not merely a a subjective thing. It is an objective reality that is true regardless of how we are feeling from one moment to the next. Now the word for peace here is shalom. That's a word I think a lot of people are familiar with. It's become kind of a trendy word to use today. Shalom, peace. But one of the things I, I want us to try to appreciate together today is that this word for peace is a victory word. Now that might not be how we're used to thinking about peace, but really in the Bible, this is a victory word. And if you look at verse 4 for a minute, you'll get a sense of this. The prophet describes the rule of the Messiah breaking the staff of the oppressor from the shoulders of his people and says it will happen as on the days of Midian. Now that's referring to the days when the Midianites oppressed the people of God in Judges chapter 6 through 8, chapter 6 through 8. And uh, what, did, what did God do? He, he raised up a deliverer in Gideon. And Gideon was able to triumph over the Midianites and brought peace to the land and peace for the people of God. But notice, Gideon in this way reflects how the rule of the Messiah will bring peace for God's people. He brought peace in the wake of his triumph. Okay, so here's the point. The peace that Messiah the Prince brings and secures for his people is a peace that he fights for and wins. It is a peace that comes in the wake of a great victory. I think that's the point of Isaiah chapter 9, verse 5. Take a look at that. For every boot of the trampling warrior and battle tumults and every garment rolled in blood will be burned as fuel for the fire. You get the word picture here that Isaiah is using. The message is simple. Jesus wins decisively. He, he wins in absolute Victory and the result of his triumph over his enemies, our enemies, is peace for God's people. And so let me let me say to you, friends, if the only image that you have of Jesus is you know, Jesus meek and mild, you, you might have some trouble understanding what Isaiah is communicating here in the title Prince of Peace. Because Jesus is a king, and the peace that characterizes his kingdom is a peace that is won by way of a conquering victory. 
But here's where the gospel surprises us. Because then we have to ask the question, okay, how has Jesus won a great victory on behalf of his people? And the answer to that question is by obeying, bleeding, suffering, dying, rising, ascending, and now reigning at the right hand of God the Father Almighty. And by doing so, he has triumphed over Satan, sin, death, and hell on the cross. He was disarming powers and authorities, putting them to open shame on the cross. Now he's seated in a place of glory as the majesty on high reigning as the King of Kings and the Lord of Lords. Now there's one other dimension of the peace Jesus brings that we, we should reflect on just for a minute together because I think it, it really gets to our greatest, most pressing, most fundamental problem. And it all boils down to this, that apart from Jesus, we are not at peace with God. Apart from Jesus the wrath of God abides upon us. The Bible tells us that we are at odds with God by nature. Actually, it speaks much more strongly than that. It, It says that we are by nature children of wrath because we're born sinners at enmity with God. So there really is no way to understand what the birth of Jesus is about No way to understand why God the Son was born a child and no way to understand what it means that he came as the Prince of Peace unless we get this truth in our hearts. That the only way to know the peace he can bring is by first having Jesus Christ reconcile us to God. He must make peace by the blood of the cross. Apart from Jesus, and this comes straight from Jesus' own mouth in the Gospel of John, apart from him, we stand under the wrath and curse of God. His righteous wrath rightly rests upon us. And that takes us then to the meaning of the cross. What was taking place on the cross? Why was Jesus crying out, my God, my God, why have you forsaken me? Because All of God's wrath against our sin was being poured out on his one and only son so that God himself was making peace for us, reconciling us to himself so that we can confess with scripture that Jesus Christ is our peace. The Prince of Peace came to make peace for you with God. And so a question we have to ask ourselves is simply this. Am I at peace with God through the Lord Jesus Christ? Because there is no other way to be at peace with him. Uh, Let's look at this other name given to Jesus. Everlasting Father. Now, of, of these four names, this is perhaps the one that causes us to scratch our heads a little bit. What does this mean Everlasting Father. What are we saying about him here? Let's think about everlasting first. In Sunday school, I I keep going back to Ecclesiastes because we talked about it this morning, but we talked about uh, the futility of 
life and the preacher of Ecclesiastes is, is talking about the futility of you know, trying to seek success and build up wealth because in the end, we all die. And then you end up giving what you tried to make for, of your, for yourself for perhaps uh, your children who will squander it. It's all vanity of vanities. But what I have in mind here is, is the reality of death that the preacher was being honest about. You know, whether we're, whether we're wealthy or poor, whether we're mighty or weak, whether we're people of great or little means, we all face the same end, don't we? I think Jeremy said it in Sunday school, quoting maybe Dr. Ferguson, that death is the great leveler of us all. Now, I'll grant that the topic of death may not be a very festive one, but uh, I think it's something that we need to have in mind right now to set the stage for appreciating what we are saying when we call Jesus Christ everlasting Father. We've just talked about Jesus as ruler. Think about the rulers of this world for a minute. Every ruler, every king, every president has had authority for a time and then has died. And his plans and purposes have gone with him. Think about it just within the line of David, the dynasty of David. Kings rise and kings fall. But now Isaiah is telling us about a descendant of David, an heir to David's throne who breaks that cycle. Of his rule, Isaiah says, of his rule and of peace, there will be no end. He will rule with justice and righteousness from this time forth and forevermore. And so we have the promise of a king whose reign never ends. Think about what wonderful encouragement that offers to us. I've talked to, to many of you this time of the year, and I know lots of us are struggling with the pain of lost loved ones and family members who have passed on ahead of us. We've all perhaps stood beside the graveside of somebody we care deeply about, and we've wept over the loss. Many of us are feeling that especially intensely this time of the year. But let's remember that this king of whom Isaiah speaks, this, this king has defeated death. He is an everlasting king, and he reigns forevermore. He is someone, then, that, to whom you can go when that sense of loss comes flooding back. He, he is one to whom you may go, who by his own death and resurrection has brought life and immortality to light because he has trampled over the grave. He is the one who is the resurrection and the life, so that all who come to him, though they die, yet shall they live. He is the everlasting one who gives life to all who find rest in him. And that means at the end of the day, dear friends, that you can look death and grief and loss in the face and say, you lose because Jesus has won. He is the everlasting Lord. So albeit through tears, we can find hope in the face of grief because Jesus Christ is our everlasting Savior. Now, what about Father? When I say this causes us to scratch our head, this is what I was referring to. He's everlasting Father. We need to get this right because we could maybe stumble a bit here in trying to make sense of this. We know 
We know Jesus is the divine Son. He is the eternal Son of the Father. So then in what sense can we speak about Christ as Father? Let's be clear as we try to make sense of this. We're not, we're not modalists, right? That ancient teaching that pops up again and again in church history that says, you know, God just uh, God is one, and he has just simply revealed himself in different modes throughout history. So one time Father, one time Son, one time Holy Spirit. Now that's, that's not right. The three persons of the Godhead, Father, Son, and Spirit, are indivisible, yet not interchangeable. Right? The Father did not die for us on the cross. That's why we, you know, we don't pray, Father, thank you for dying on the cross for us. Jesus didn't send the Father to be our Savior. The Holy Spirit was not conceived in the womb of the Virgin Mary. We confess with Scripture and the church in all places across all ages that God is one undivided being, and he is eternally three divine persons, Father, Son, and Holy Spirit. And each divine person possesses the whole Undividable divine essence. And these three dwell together in perfect fellowship, love, and communion and mutual delight in such a way that we can say the Father is God, the Son is God, the Holy Spirit is God, but the Father is not the Son and the Holy Spirit, the Son is not the Father and the Spirit, and the Spirit is not the Father and the Son. Yet these three are one God, same in substance, equal in power and glory. Okay, so with all that said, what does Isaiah mean then when he calls Christ everlasting Father? I'm going to say two things about this. I think two words that sum this up for us, I hope. The first word is, this is a word of affection. This is a word of affection. It's a word of tenderness. He is a father who cares for his own. Jesus is a Savior who is full of compassion. That's why he came. Compassion. Compassion is what motivated him throughout his ministry. Think of a couple of stories we have in the Gospels that speak to Jesus' compassion. One of my favorite stories in all the Gospels, Luke chapter 7, in the story of the widow of Nain. And Luke sets up this picture. You have Jesus and his band of disciples making their way to the city gate of Nain. And on their way, they're greeted by a funeral procession that is led by a grieving mother. There's no husband by her side. There's no son to take the father's place. She's standing there alone, and Jesus perceives like this, that this woman is burying her only Son, that's left. And then Luke tells us that Jesus had compassion on her. So what did he do? He stops the funeral procession. He tells her, do not weep. He goes and he places his hand on a human corpse. He raises the son to new life. And I love the way Luke puts it. Luke says, he gave the son back to his mother. And it was all because Jesus had compassion Or think about in Matthew's gospel when this large crowd is listening to Jesus teaching and preaching. And Matthew tells us in verse 36 that 
They were, they were harassed and helpless like sheep without a shepherd, and Jesus had compassion on them. Actually, I think that, that metaphor of, of a shepherd overlaps nicely in Scripture with the description of Christ as a father of his people. Jesus is the good shepherd, John 10, verse 11. He calls his flock by name. He knows each of his own. He leads them out and in to find pasture for their souls. He will tend, this is Isaiah 40, he will tend his flock like a shepherd. He will gather the lambs in his arms and carry them in his bosom and gently lead those who are with young. Isaiah 40, verse 11. He loves the sheep. He cares for the sheep. He's a father full of compassion and gentleness and tenderness toward his own. And so as we think about this as a word of affection, first of all, I think we have to say a few things. First of all, I think we need to say that the truth of the matter is that some of us have complicated relationships with our earthly fathers or with father figures in our lives. For some of us, in the time of Christmas and the holiday season is a real challenge. Something that induces a lot of stress and anxiety in our lives because we know who we might have to spend time around. In fact, because of our painful history, some of us have a hard time having any positive image of fatherhood at all. It's just difficult for us to relate to it in any kind of positive way. And so when we read or hear that Jesus is an everlasting father, well, the word father just tends to conjure up for us anxiety, maybe even dark memories of, of control, anger, manipulation, perhaps even abuse. That's what a father is because that's what a father has been in our experience. Friends, please, I want to plead with you this morning. Understand that when Scripture speaks of Jesus as a father, it is speaking of the perfect father. It's speaking of the ideal father, a real father who acts out of compassion and gentleness and care. A father who has never turned toward you with anything but a heart filled with love, and a love that is not fickle, a love that never comes with strings attached. It's not someone who's ready to just yank everything out from under you the moment that you slip up. Understand that in Jesus, you have one who knows everything about you. He, he, knows, the, he knows the secret Thoughts of your mind. He knows what you've done in secret. He knows your sin. He knows your failing. He knows it all. And he loves you with tender compassion. And friends, your weakness and your sin and your failure do not diminish his loving compassion for you one bit at all. It's a father full of compassion, the love that never fails, never gets cold. It's not on one day, off the next. It's not up one day, down the next. It's never withdrawn. It's steady and sure and reliable 
because he loves you with an everlasting love, because he's an everlasting father. So we can speak of Jesus Christ in this way, as father. It's a word of affection. But the second word that I have in mind is it's also a word of revelation. Word of revelation. Here's what I mean. In the Bible, Jesus is everywhere identified as the Son of the Father. And as the divine Son, he reveals the Father to us. We, We know the Father. We know what the Father is like by knowing Jesus Christ. And so John 1.18 tells us, No one has ever seen God, the only God who is in the bosom of the Father. He has made him known. Or you remember the story in John 14 when Philip is struggling to understand Jesus' relation to the Father. Philip asks, uh, Lord, show us the Father and it will be enough for us. And Jesus responds and says, have I, have I been with you so long and you still do not know me, Philip? Whoever has seen me has seen the Father. So how can you say, show us the Father? Do you not believe that I am in the Father and the Father is in me? Reiterating, he makes the Father known. To see Jesus is to see the Father. So ask the question, okay, what is God really like? And the answer of the gospel to that question is look no further than Jesus Christ. God in flesh. I think this is, this is so important, so helpful for us to understand. Because here's, here's another way we can get tripped up sometimes. And we get that Jesus is loving and gracious and compassionate and tender to our to, to his own. But then in our hearts, we have this kind of suspicion towards God, the Father. And for whatever reason, perhaps based on our experience has shaped us, perhaps based on bad teaching, whatever the cause may be, we have, we have this perception that God the Father is, you know, stingy, uh, angry, full of wrath, just ready to come down and crush us. He's demanding, vengeful. But dear friends, that is such a profoundly distorted view of God that we have to get rid of. Jesus Christ is the image of God. So to see him is to see the Father. To know him is to know the Father. To know what Jesus is like is to know what God the Father is like. Jesus' heart toward you is the Father's heart toward you because there is no conflict in God. There's no good cop, bad cop. And I've, I've heard it put this way, that there is nothing unchristlike in God the Father. And so in this word Father, there is, there is a word of affection. Jesus is Like a father with compassion for his children, he loves you with a tender compassion. And there's a word of revelation here. When you see the fatherly compassion of Christ incarnate, it is revelational. It's communicating and revealing something about the love of the triune God for his people. It shows you what God is really like. 
John, and I mentioned this verse earlier, John 1.18, literally what John says is Jesus exegetes the Father. He explains the Father to us. God of compassion and tender mercy. There's one final word that I want to say as we wrap up, and it's to those who are with us this morning who have not yet believed in the Lord Jesus Christ. Let me let me say to you that you know, whatever your family life is like, whatever grief or gladness you may experience this time of the year, I want to urge you to not remain outside of the family of God. Because God has said to us that for all who believe in the Lord Jesus Christ, God has given them a right to be called the children of God. I want to invite you this morning to trust in him and know him as your wonderful counselor, mighty God, everlasting Father, and the Prince of Peace. Please join me in prayer. Gracious God, we give you thanks for time in this portion of your word and all that it reveals to us about the identity and the character of the Lord Jesus Christ. Please hide these truths away in our hearts and bring them to mind. And we pray that you would deepen our understanding and appreciation that Jesus is a wonder worthy of our adoration, that he's a counselor, a king that we can trust and obey. He is himself uh, God, our warrior, who has gone to fight for us and to defeat the works of the devil. He is a father who loves us with an everlasting compassion, and he is the prince of peace. May we know these realities, these truths for ourselves, embracing them by faith, and so live in the light of our Savior and know the joy of his salvation and the freedom that he brings. We pray these things in his name. Amen.